Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us in this very intimate lightning talk session. Um, I'm Andrea Ledesma. I'm the advisor for the scholarship committee, so thank you for joining us. Um, each year, MCN welcomes 15 emerging leaders in museum technology to bring them into the conference, and you see five of them here today. Um, this year, with support from the Crest Foundation, we welcome scholars from US, Canada, and Europe, and their work is so exciting and diverse, and we're glad to share it with you. Um, so today, each of these scholars have five minutes to share a portion of their work. Um, they'll go back to back, so if you have any questions, please save them for the end or find them. They're still here. Um, and with further, without further ado, I'm just going to hand it over so we can get started. Oof. So professional. <laughs> Hello, everyone. My name is Amy. I'm a museum educator at Munson Williams Proctor Arts Institute. So I'd like to talk to you today about something that I'm passionate about. And what I'm passionate about is uh, content creation and digital platform selection when working with very specific audiences. So we all know what mobile platforms are capable of at this point, so I won't you know, harp on it. Um, but what I'm going to do is focus on not so much the tech, but why we use the tech that we do and to what end. Um, so I think we often create mobile guides with um, you know, sort of as wide an audience as possible in mind, and it's usually centered around a specific exhibition or maybe our collection as a whole. But where I think mobile guides really excel is in targeting these really specialized populations. Um, so I'm going to tell you just a little bit about uh, my institute. Um, so we are a fine arts museum in the inner city of a rural county in upstate New York, right in the Rust Belt. We have a large elderly population, and a lot of these folks have difficulty getting to our museum. They live outside of city limits, and if you're at all familiar with upstate New York, we have really harsh winters. Um, it's kind of prohibitive for them. Um, we also have a lot of underserved uh, inner city schools. Um, there are 13 Title I schools across nine districts in our county, um, and this particularly affects teens and middle schoolers. So what we wanted to do was find a way to serve these groups. So the first step is to assess the needs in your community. And I'm going to apologize. The text is a little wonky in some places. Um, so for both of these groups, we're building apps that uh, are going to be free to use. They're going to have digital and real world components. And they're also going to be available on iPod touches that we will have available for everyone just to rent for free. So group one, so this is the elderly population and it gets more specific. Uh, they are elderly that are not necessarily living in a residential facility because we have programming for those folks already. Um, and they're going to be folks that live with, uh, with or without memory care concerns. More often we're leaning towards those with memory care concerns like Alzheimer's and dementia. And so their needs are companionship, the option to participate remotely, cognitive stimulation, um, via the senses, uh, cognitive stimulation, via conversation and interpersonal connection, and something that's easy to use. Group two are these inner city teens. Um, many of these are from low income or single parent families. A lot of these are refugees. We no longer have boys, or, boys and girls clubs in our city, so a lot of them don't have access to uh, after school resources or entertainment. So their needs are safe, interactive, and free programming, access to content independent of Wi-Fi or cell service, content that's engaging and empowering, and increased familiarity with local parks and resources. Um, the local resources like parks, museums, and libraries. So step uh, two is to develop engaging and accessible content. So what that's going to look like for this first group is an app that's called Let's Talk About Art. And both of these apps are currently in development. 
Um, so this is a conversation-based mobile experience that's geared towards memory care patients and their caregivers. So the idea is that they would be doing it together. Um, the content is focused on improving quality of life and lessening museum anxiety. Among other things, this is going to feature an emoji module, and this is going to promote self-expression and facial expression awareness and recognition, which is really crucial for Alzheimer's patients. It's also, like many mobile apps, going to be capable of off-site use so they can do this right from home and not have to worry about braving you know, the winter roads. Um, for our second group, um, these are inner city teens again, and we're focusing on teens that live right in our immediate vicinity. Um, so this is going to be called Hidden Treasure, a Mystery in Plain Sight. This is a scavenger hunt and geocaching mobile guide, um, and it's a mobile experience, I guess, geared towards these teens. The content's focused on community engagement using public resources that are right at their fingertips, but they might not necessarily know that they're there or for them. Um, so among other things, it's going to include real world and in-app interactives, and both of these things are going to uh, have the ability for them to share the content that they create with their peers. We're also going to have social media sharing and follow-up resources in the real world. So at these libraries, museums, and parks, they're going to have things that they can access after they finish the app. So it will continue on. So the last step is to choose your vehicle and forgive the car metaphor. Um, this is me the day that I bought my current car. And as you might guess from the background, it is not fancy. Manual everything, literally. Um, windows and all. Um, but because I can drive stick, I get around just fine. And so the thing to remember here is that the content of your mobile guides is the driver and the tech is the vehicle. So the tech doesn't need to be fancy. It's just a means to get you where you want to go. Um, so that being said, if you're in the market for a mobile platform, here's some things to consider. Uh, functionality, cost, scalability, accessibility, and staff time and training. These are going to vary in order of importance depending on you and your institution, um, but this is a good place to get started. When all else fails, make do and make something. So how do we make engaging content? Have a goal. Have a message. Have a specific target audience. Have an element of intrigue, because it never hurts. Make it meaningful and relevant. Mine your existing resources. There's no need to go and dump a bunch of money into a new platform that you're unfamiliar with, unless you absolutely need to. Use what you have. Um, and make it fun. Um, Sorry, let me just get to my notes. So as long as you're being intentional about, intentional about the content that you're creating, the tech is going to be secondary. So make what you have work for you. My final advice is to slow down, start small, and build on your successes. So thank you so much to the MCN Scholarship Committee for letting me be here. And if you have any questions, um, come and find me. Yeah, thank you. Um, my name is Alyssa Machida. I'm currently working as the Asian Art Learning Resources Fellow at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I've worked in uh, a lot of different museums and had different titles and responsibilities, but if you distill my current work and role down to its essence, I'm an educator focused on human-centered and community-empowered methods for designing learning experiences at MIA. Um, and in this picture here, that's me uh, on the climbing wall, um, one of the first times I started climbing a little less than a year ago. Um, now 
now why am I talking about climbing? Don't worry, I know it's MCN, I didn't stumble into the wrong conference. Um, in this five minute session today, I really wanted to share with you um, who I am and what I'm passionate about. Um, and before I started working in art museums, over two decades of my life has been dedicated to sports and being an athlete. Um, and they didn't teach me in K-12 or undergrad or grad school how to problem solve in real life and how to be on teams and uh, tackle tricky projects at big organizations. Uh, the way I learned these lessons and developed these skills is through not only museum work experience, but also in places like on the climbing wall. Um, and when I started climbing, I was super intrigued by the words and the terminology of the sport. So in climbing, problems are the sequence of moves required to successfully complete a climb. The word project, interestingly to me, is actually used as both a noun and a verb. So a project is any problem that you can't successfully complete in one pass, and the act of continually attempting the problem uh, is to project or projecting. And so working on big, ambitious, creative projects in the museum feels a lot like when I go to climbing. When I go climbing, um, when I step up to the wall, I need to figure out what is the successful sequence of moves, and it's usually really hard. Uh, takes a lot of trial, error, and iteration. Um, and climbing is what, for me, has helped me develop skills in patience, persistence, and openness in approaching, navigating, and tackling projects. Um, now, I have three key lessons that I've learned that I would like to share with you today. Um, a very important disclaimer that climbing is not required nor recommended in order to learn these lessons. It's just how it happened for me. Um, so the first lesson is the importance of projecting together with team members in order to build shared understandings, trust, collective ethos, uh, and to witness each other's learnings, trials, and failures together. Um, this is my friend and close colleague, uh, Gretchen. I'd never met her before we were thrown together to figure out how to successfully complete a big project at our museum. And in the early stages of working together, we started going climbing together. Now, this wasn't planned. I didn't intentionally suggest suggested for the purposes of team building, uh, we just tried it. And it, while it might not be the one singular thing that brought success to our project, it got us out of the office. It gave us the opportunity to get to know each other as real people. Um, we were having conversations we wouldn't be having in meetings, and we talked shop on and off the wall. And essentially, we were in an environment designed to practice the act of solving difficult problems together, recreationally and just for fun. We are able to form a collaborative, trust-based relationship for problem solving in a way that just doesn't happen in a formal office meeting for an hour once a week. So the second lesson that I've learned um, that was almost like an epiphany for me was to approach, uh, to have the mindset of approaching museum projects like a problem to solve. So I now know that that is a mental framework that exists in experience design, but for me, it was climbing that ingrained in me the understanding that problems are inherently difficult. Um, and to not let that be a barrier for frustration or um, paralysis or abandoning it just because it is difficult and hard. Um, I learned through climbing that hard things are possible, you just have to keep at it. And the last lesson I want to share with you today is the importance of acknowledging and addressing our weaknesses openly and without the stigma of risk or shame. Now, I don't know how much you can see in this image, but this is me on the wall on some starting holds that I personally call credit card holds. So they're crimps that are so slender and thin, you're essentially supporting your body weight with your fingers on holds that are as slim as credit cards. Now, the first time I tried this, it was impossible. And if I forced it, I would have really injured myself. 
myself. Um, but I was really surprised that after a few attempts, over a few weeks, my fingers adjusted and they strengthened and I was able to do something previously physically outside the realm of possibility for me. So in museums, urgency and sometimes absurd ways of keeping time and deadlines and a sense that we need to be perfect or professional all the time can really limit opportunities for us to slow down, take stock, learn, iterate, pivot, and grow towards something really great, unprecedented, and innovative. So I learned as a climber that our weaknesses don't limit us or make us fail unless we ignore them. Um, I know that was super brief, but I wanted it to be a conversation starter and an opportunity to share with you the real me. Um, please feel free to connect with me and talk with me about climbing, museums, or literally anything else. Um, I really look forward to connecting with you. Thank you. Um, hi everyone, I'm uh, Mairelis Lemus Rojas and I work as a digital initiative metadata librarian at IUPUI University Library in Indiana. Um, and I'm going to talk to you today about uh, projects I've been working on uh, to contribute to the representation of women artists in Wikidata. So Wikidata, as you probably have heard in the past uh, a few days, uh, you might be familiar with this, it's a multilingual knowledge base that stores structured linked data um, under CC0 license, which means that it can be reused and repurposed by anyone. Uh, for instance, we have uh, Google making use of Wikidata's data to generate their, their uh, knowledge cards. Uh, this is a project that was launched in 2012 by Wikimedia Deutschland, and it already has over 60 million items. Uh, Wikidata ser uh, serves as the central repository for uh, uh, all Wikimedia projects. So here we see uh, on the screen an entry for uh, uh, the artist Judy Chicago, and we can see that Wikidata does not exist in isolation, so we have an entry for Judy Chicago in Wikidata, and it's connected to uh, three different projects in this particular case. Uh, but despite the fact that there are over 60 million items in Wikidata, there is a huge uh, gender gap uh, in the project. Uh, if we see here in the, on, on the table, 82% um, uh, are entries that have been identified as uh, males and only 17% for females. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And so there are two projects that have been uh, working towards not only uh, providing a representation in Wikidata on Wikipedia for women, but also making sure that they are properly described. And these are the Wiki project Women in Red and the Wiki project uh, Women. So one of the things that I worked on uh, um, last year uh, in an effort to, you know, make micro contributions toward this, uh, uh, you know, bridging this gender uh, divide uh, was working on this uh, uh, 100 Wikidays challenge on Wikidata. And essentially this is, uh, this was a way uh, to, uh, you know, everyone can do this and it's a way to make yourself accountable and so uh, creating this entry, so it would be creating an entry uh, every day, every day for a hundred consecutive days, which can be challenging, especially if you're traveling. Uh, but it's again, it's a good way to to make smaller contributions. And so, uh, in, for this particular uh, project, I focus on female Cuban artists. 
because I found that they were not well represented in uh, Wikidata. And the other project that, that I've been working on is, again, uh, related to women artists, but in this particular case for uh, Indiana or Hoosier uh, uh, women artists. And for this, I have been uh, collaborating and contributing and using the resources from the, uh, from the Indianapolis Museum of Art, so essentially going there physically and looking through their artist files and pulling information to be able to create these uh, entries. So, so far, um, the outcomes of this project have been, you know, creating uh, uh, 40 new entries in, in Wikidata for uh, artists and, or enhancing existing entries and also creating entries not just for the artists but uh, for things that, that might need to be linked to the artists, like for, in this case, uh, an entry for a school or a newspaper so that it can be uh, used to support the statement for the artist or a cemetery where the person had been buried and things like that since everything in Wikidata needs to be, you know, the data is structured so everything needs to be in Wikidata in order uh, for you to be able to link it. And the lessons learned uh, with these uh, uh, two projects are not surprising. Uh, uh, essentially, you know, finding biographical information about women artists is challenging. I mean, I would say that it's challenging finding information about women in general, and uh, even more so finding reliable resources. But uh, the work can be done. It's, it just takes a little bit more time and effort. Um, but um, all of us working in uh, cultural heritage institutions um, have access to databases and data sets with information about women artists that if uh, shared in Wikidata could bring us a step closer uh, uh, you know, uh, to uh, bridging the gender divide. So I would encourage you all to check out Wikidata. It's, it's really fun and I think you would be making a contribution to this uh, uh, knowledge uh, ecosystem. Oh. oh, and that means thank you in Wikidata. <laughs> Hello, my name is Tracy Haup, and I am a graduate student at the University of Maryland, uh, where I am pursuing a master's in American history, as well as a master's in archives and digital curation. Um, and I'm also doing a, a certificate in museum scholarship and material culture. I'm going to be talking to you guys today about a project to increase accessibility to records related to Japanese American internment camps during World War II. Um, this is a project that was taken on by the Digital Curation and Innovation Center at the University of Maryland, uh, which is a unique group um, that's comprised of undergraduate and graduate students collaborating together to bring the tools and ideas of computer science to various archival projects. So the Digital Curation and Innovation Center was granted by the National Archives exclusive access to the War Relocation Authority's internal security report. Um, they were similar to police reports, and they take the form of 25,000 index cards, which are organized like you see on the screen, in boxes. And these records are important because they demonstrate the very harsh and arbitrary nature of living in these camps under martial law, but they also demonstrate powerful acts of survival, protest, and resistance. And I have on the screen a breakdown of the, um, the amount of cards that are in the collection for each camp, and you can see that the largest amount of cards is for Thule Lake, which is a camp that 
um, they sent people who had been considered troublemakers in other camps, and typically these were people who were organizing various political protests to um, protest their treatment in the camps. Now there's a couple of different problems if you are a researcher who wants to do research with this collection. The first problem is that because these are considered analogous to criminal records, any card that contained information about someone under the age of 18 could not be released, and because the National Archives lacked the resources to be able to individually check every single card, they shut down the collection um, as a whole for researchers. Um, but even if you could overcome that problem, there's also the issue, um, there's a limited ability to search this collection. So if you wanted to search uh, what was in the cards about a particular person, uh, the organization of the collection would support that, but if you wanted to do research, for example, on who participated on a particular protest on a particular day, um, you would find that to be very difficult with the current organization. Um, also, if you wanted to study broader patterns in the cards, like what activities were policed the most um, by the guards in the camp, um, it would also be very difficult to do that type of research. Um, so to address these problems, I'm going to tell you the steps that we followed. Uh, the first step was to extract data from the index cards. Uh, so we performed OCR on the cards after we scanned them. We also did named entity recognition using uh, gate textual processing. And because the cards all follow generally the same format, which you can see on the screen, it was easy for us to be able to train a computer to know um, when the information appears in this particular area of the card, then put it in the date field. If it appears in this area of the card, then put it in the name field. Um, and then we were able to turn these index cards into beautiful Excel spreadsheets. Now, anybody who's ever worked with um, OCRing old documents uh, probably knows that it's not going to come out perfect. Uh, so we also had to uh, clean the data, um, and that would correct for any types of typos or any um, types of problems with the OCR. Another thing that we encountered is that the people who recorded information on the cards didn't always use the same vocabulary or the same abbreviations or the same spellings. Um, so we wanted to be able to create some uh, consistency as well as to check for accuracy. So we used Google Open Refine, which is a free tool that allows you to, um, to clean and manipulate data. Uh, and that helped us to um, create the usable data that we wanted. Now the next thing that we did um, is we wanted to solve the problem of making sure that these records could actually be released. So now that we have a data set, what we can do um, is we can take the date of the card um, and then we can look up the individual who's named on the card uh, based on we have the final accountability roster, we also have some information on Form 26, um, and we can calculate that person's age at the time of the incident on the card. Um, and using uh, Python, we were able to automate the process of checking is this person over the, age of, or over the age of 17 at the time of this incident? If so, release the card. If not, do not release the card. Now also, because we had all this information on a spreadsheet, that opens up a lot of other different possibilities. Um, what you see on the screen are just some very um, brief examples of just some of the things that we've been or experimenting with. Uh, the first is using QGIS. We've been plotting the different uh, incident cards on a map of the camps. And we're hoping to develop that into maybe a more sophisticated interactive map of some of the things that were happening in the camp. Um, the other thing that we can do is we can take some of the information from the cards and also from the, uh, the registers of people and we can analyze them and to create data visualizations that might tell you a little bit more about the people in the camp. So the example that's on the screen is the age of the people that were incarcerated at Tule Lake. I know for me, one of the things I found most uh, shocking was to realize exactly how many of the people that were in the camps were uh, children and young people. Um, and I found that uh, to be a very affecting thing to know. 
Now, I do want to be clear that we believe that turning these cards into data and being able to do all these different visualizations and, and such um, is interesting for creating new insights and allowing new opportunities to explore the topics in the cards. However, we understand that these are the stories of real people. They're not just data points. Um, and to that end, um, we've been partnering with other, or other organizations for outreach and interpretation um, because we don't necessarily feel like we are the people that are most qualified to tell these stories. Uh, so one of the groups that we've been partnering with is Densho, which is the Japanese American Legacy Project, um, which works with survivors and survivors' families as well as scholars who have been uh, specializing in this particular topic and they're going to be hosting uh, the digital database of records, and they're also going to be providing interpretive content and guidance on the various uh, privacy issues, considering that this is a various, or I'm sorry, a very sensitive topic. Another thing that we did recently is we sponsored an event on campus with uh, the filmmaker Conrad Adderer. He did a documentary called Resistance at Tule Lake. And in that documentary, um, he talks about the different protests that happened at Tule Lake Camp. And a lot of the individuals that are mentioned in his documentary also appear in our cards. And so we thought that that was like a really interesting way of bringing context to the project that we're working on. So we staged an event where in the beginning of the event, um, students presented on the different research that we've been doing um, and the different processes that we've been following to try to make these cards more available. Um, and then we screened the movie and we did a Q&A with the filmmaker to sort of show how those two uh, topics are relating to each other and how we're contributing to the research. Sorry, I think there's there supposed to be another card there about uh, that just had my contact information if you wanted to contact me. But um, otherwise, you can just find me after the presentation and I can give you my contact information. Right, thank you. Hi everyone, my name is um, Clémence Prudot-Davigny. I'm head of development for the Eclam Fund for Endangered Heritage. We are based in Paris, in France. And today I will tell you how I think um, VR can generate empathy. To start very briefly on uh, Econem. So Econem is a company doing 3D digitization of Endangered Heritage. We are working in 30 countries, mostly in the Middle East, uh, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. And we also have a non-profit fund, which I'm working for. The non-profit is mostly dedicated to training local experts into our technologies in order to make them um, independent towards the heritage protection. We use a technology called photogrammetry, which I think some of you might have heard. Uh, might have of, and uh, it consists in collecting a very large number of 2D pictures and then creating a 3D model using um, pixel of these pictures, and usually it's a hyper-realistic 3D model. Uh, last fall, um, we created an exhibition at the Arab World Institute in Paris called Agile Cities. It has been the most visited uh, exhibition ever for this museum, and the one with the youngest audience by eight years in partnership with, for example, uh, the UNESCO or Ubisoft. It's not traveling, it went to Saudi Arabia, then to Germany, and actually it's coming to DC in December at the Smithsonian Museum. It's showcased um, through immersive uh, projection for, a city or for cities or archeological sites in the Middle East. Aleppo in Syria and Mosul in Iraq, which are both cities. 
and uh, Palmyra in Syria and Leptis Magna in Libya, which are archaeological sites. Um, and all along the exhibition uh, were displayed testimonies of people directly affected by the destruction or looting of heritage. Displaced people, for example, who used to live in those cities or archaeologists or heritage experts who has worked for decades on those sites. It allowed the audience to have an insight on how heritage destruction really affects lives of people as it isn't just a bunch of old rocks like hanging together. But um, it also made the exhibition more human-oriented because behind every site and every landmark there are people living there and people working there. We also decided uh, to form a partnership with Ubisoft, which is a, a French video game studio. Uh, they are the one who created Assassin's Creed, for example. And um, they are developing their VR department, so they were interested to make a partnership with us for this exhibition, as it made their VR uh, work more known. So we created the VR experience at the end of the exhibition to discover six landmarks in those four cities or archaeological sites. The goal were various, of course, it was to innovate, um, but also to attract a younger audience and to continue the creation of empathy uh, through a real physical experience. It's supposed to be a video, but... Sorry, what? Okay. Well, it was supposed to be a video to show you how uh, the VR was, but I'll still be talking um, about it. So the VR experience allowed everyone um, to interact into a destroyed site. We created a deep connection between all the testimony inside the exhibition and the VR experience as lived by the audience. It was driven by the idea to leave it in order to understand what it's like to see your city destroyed by war. We work with Ubisoft on a multisensorial experience. We created a perfume we put uh, near the VR experience to have a smell uh, that was supposed to send like dust and rocks under the sun, which I'm quite skeptical about it, but I'm still <laughs> saying it. Um, and we recorded specific sound directly from the field because uh, we go on field to get data. It created an emotional and lasting experience for the audience and a lot of people, for example, were crying and a lot of um, schools came to, uh, to see the exhibition to uh, understand really what the conflict, was, uh, the conflict was about. Ultimately, this VR experience created a realness around the war and empathy for its victims, especially towards refugees and displaced people, um, as the audience has been given a chance to share briefly the experience. It showed that uh, for the first time in an exhibition at the Arab World Institute, VR is a great tool to share personal stories and create emotional experiences for all ages. And also that partnerships can be a real trigger for VR. Thank you. Thank you.